0: Thank you, Luke. That's the first hazard of the morning over, Luke's introduction. I think I got away with that. Uh, Just out of interest, was anybody here when I spoke last time? I see that hand, yeah. Oh, quite a few, yeah. Anyone remember what I spoke about? Okay, imagine it's Sunday school. What will the answer be? Almost, yes, Jesus. Thank you. It's always Jesus, isn't it? Yeah, it's always Jesus. Always the best guess. Yeah. So um, it's great to be with you again. Um, What we're going to look at this morning is something that, for me personally, for years and years, whenever I heard a speaker say that they were going to talk about it, my heart used to sink. And that subject is faith. What does it mean to have faith? What does it mean to walk by faith? and be a person of faith. And I can almost feel discomfort in the room already. Because if there's one thing that we all know, or we think we know, it's that we don't have enough of it. However much we've got, it almost certainly isn't enough. And yet we know that faith is very important in the Christian life. Habakkuk 2.4 in the Old Testament, which is quoted three times in the New Testament, so it must be important, says the righteous will live by faith. Hebrews 11.6 in the New Testament says, without faith it's impossible to please God. Who hasn't felt depressed by that one. But what is this thing called faith? And what does living by faith actually mean? None of the early creeds tell us. No statement of faith or confession of faith tells us. But there's plenty of stuff out there In the Christian world, that wants to tell us that none of these come with a recommendation, by the way, but you may well have come across them or something like them. So that is what we're going to look at together this morning. What is faith? What does it mean to have faith? And what does it mean to be living by faith? So I want to start by looking at three ideas, three assumptions about faith that people often have things that you may have heard said, or at least implied. And number one is that faith has to do with mental certainty, mental assurance about getting the answer that we're praying for. An example of that is how the Living Bible translates Hebrews 11.1, 1, or I should say how it interprets it, because it's not actually what the original says, it's what the person who wrote it for it meant, by what it says. The Living Bible is a paraphrase by Kenneth Taylor that he originally wrote for his children. Faith, he said, is the confident assurance that something we want is going to happen. The certainty that what we hope for is waiting for us. Now, I don't know about you, but I was given a Living Bible when I became a Christian as a teenager. So, I assumed that that must be right, that having faith was this unshakable mental certainty that what I wanted to happen would happen, that it was just sitting there waiting for me, provided that I never let any doubts enter my head along the way, in case then it didn't happen, and it was my lack of faith that was the reason why. So uh, this is me. Me. Um, a few years ago, before my six-pack became a 12-pack. And I thought faith was a bit like that. Like walking a mental tightrope that I could fall off at any moment, unless I could somehow cut out any doubts from my mind, any questions and any negative thoughts, and especially never to voice them out loud in what people called a negative confession I was told that I just had to completely believe that God will do, quote, what he says in his word. And what people mean by that is they find a verse, uh, claim it as obviously true in your situation, and then you try really, really hard never to let any other possibility come into your head. Idea number two is that something called faith, has power in and of itself to make something happen, and the lack of faith will stop it happening. And this kind of thinking is based on the idea that God has put in place some kind of impersonal cosmic power, uh, a bit like the force in Star Wars, if you've ever seen uh, those movies, that can be kind of tapped into especially by special people, anointed people, men and women of God, as they're called. Luke Skywalker, one the Christians, who, as Darth Vader famously said, the force is strong with this one. So if that is right, then any the reason that we don't get what we pray for can only be lack of faith on the part of the person praying, or lack of faith on the part of the person being paid for. Either way, it's somebody's fault. And we'll come back to that a bit later. And then idea number three is that faith is about quantity, how much of it we've got, as if it's kind of measurable on a scale, with perfect faith at one end and no faith at the other. And that kind of begs the question, how far along that scale do we need to be to get results, to get what we've prayed for? So let's use an analogy to think about that. I was going to use high school grades and grade point averages, but when I googled it, it was all very confusing. So I thought instead I would tell you about the British high school grading system. Who says that you never learn anything interesting at Red Bluff Vineyard? So, in the final year of high school for British kids, there are examinations, and they're called GCSEs. And the papers are marked, and the students get a grade from 1 to 9 in each subject. Now, just to confuse matters, there are two pass marks. A standard pass is a grade 4, And a strong pass is a grade 5. Only Brits could come up with a system with two different answers to the simple question, did I pass? So 9 is the highest mark we can get, and 1 is the lowest. Unless, of course, we get a U for ungraded. Which presumably means we didn't even spell our name right at the top of the paper. Okay, folks, so here is the question. If you sat one of these GCSEs in faith, what grade do you think you would get? Would you pass? And if you get a strong pass, do you get bigger prayers answered or more prayers answered than just a standard pass? What if you get a grade three or below? Do you get any prayers answered? How do we even know whether we've achieved the past mark? The implication, of course, is that we just work backwards from whether the thing we prayed for happens or not. And that kind of makes me wonder how folks in the Bible would have got on. So I reckon Jesus would uh, obviously have been annoyed, right? At least. The Apostle Paul would probably be next. After all, he did write most of the New Testament But then again, he never got healed from that thorn in the flesh, did he? Even though he prayed three times for God to take it away. So that lack of faith, that failure to have this confident assurance that something he wanted was going to happen, even though it was supposedly just waiting for him, as the Living Bible wants to tell us, that presumably has to bump him down a bit. So why don't we give him a seven? And then there's Jesus' disciples. Okay, now this is a tricky one because it was to them that Jesus famously said, O ye of little faith. And he said it more than once, didn't he? So if you read the Gospels, there are times when you probably struggle to give them more than a three. But they were the people that Jesus chose to build his church on. So he must have known what he was doing. So let's be generous and We'll give them a five. Now, of course, I'm being a little bit flippant here. But I wonder if you can see some of the problems in these ways of thinking. Now, You may have noticed that as we ran through these three standard assumptions that Christians often make, that none of them actually said in the Bible. They are what we call folk theology ideas that get passed around in the Christian world. But once you've heard two or three people say them, you assume they must be right. And you may say, but why does this matter, Steve? Don't be so fussy. So long as it's encouraging people to have more faith, where is the harm in that? But you know, quite often the problem is that a lot of harm is... You know, Maybe you've experienced that in your own life. Because although some of this does offer a convenient explanation for why someone doesn't get healed, it does so at the cost of heaping the blame on the person praying, or even worse, on the person being prayed for. Because it's effectively saying that it must be their fault. It could have happened. It would have happened. If only they had enough faith. And you know, it doesn't make God look good either. So Jesus loves us enough to die on the cross for us, but he withholds answers to our prayers unless we achieve a certain level of faith, and that's there. Really? So answers to our prayers can feel like God kind of tangling a carrot on a stick just in front of our noses. If only we'd had just that little bit more faith. This wouldn't have happened. That wouldn't have happened. This person wouldn't have died. That person would have been healed. It could have happened and it would have happened if only we had had enough faith. If only we had had just that little bit more. It's as if God is saying, sorry guys, maybe next time. Just keep working. But you know this kind of theology, this kind of thinking, turns God into a kind of prayer answering machine that just needs to be programmed right in order to get results. It makes God into a process instead of a person. Praying becomes a mechanism rather than part of a relationship. And you know what it's actually doing? It's putting our faith in faith rather than in God. It delegates answers to prayer to laws and rules that God has supposedly put in place in the universe. It also implies that we can't have questions or fears about life or doubts about God or stuff in the Bible or anything. Because if we do, then that might jeopardize the outcome. And then finally, it encourages people to cherry-pick promises, taking nice verses in the Bible out of their original context and turning them into universal truths that we then tell God that he must honour because they are in his word. It encourages us to think that we can improve the odds of our prayers being answered if we name them and claim them. Now, of course, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying on this because, of course, there are promises in the Bible where we see miraculous things happening, signs and wonders and answers to prayer. And, of course, they are in the Bible to encourage us in our own lives because they are the kind of things that God can do and at times will do. But, you know, he knows those verses just as well as we do. He doesn't need to be told what he must do because of them in particular situations. All of these ways of thinking are presenting faith as if it's a transaction with God, instead of a relationship with God. They're picturing a God who relates to us through laws and rules that he supposedly put in place, instead of, A God who specifically says that our relationship with him is not based on laws and rules. In fact, it's based on faith instead of laws and rules. they are picturing a God who seems to have expectations of us that we know, and we must know, realistically we can never live up to. A God who doesn't want us to have questions, even when they're really good questions. A God who seems to lack compassion and understanding and empathy for what it means to be human like we are. In short, they're talking about a God who doesn't seem to be in the least like Jesus, who is surely the very opposite of all that. So all of those ways of thinking inevitably make you and me feel like failures, don't they? Because if that is what faith is, then we will never succeed at it. But I don't think that our God is a God who says, you will never succeed in what I ask of you. Any more than any loving parent or teacher would ever say that to a child. Asking them to do something that they know full well they are guaranteed to fail at. So if all of that isn't what faith is all about, then what might be a better way of thinking about it? One that puts relationship back in the center. Faith in God instead of faith in getting answers. So the New Testament Greek word for faith had a range of meanings, but its principal meaning was to do with trust, loyalty, and commitment. So its context was relational. So the best single word that we could use nowadays instead to mean the same thing would probably be trust." And trust is shown by our doing rather than by our thinking. Just in the same way as love is not defined by what's going on up here. Right, neither is faith. Both love and faith are doing words. So whether we've got faith or we haven't got faith is not shown by a scan of our brains. A person of faith is someone who acts in ways that are faithful to what they believe. Whose actions out there show everybody the decisions that they've made in here. Decisions that reflect that trust and loyalty and commitment. Okay, so in our modern English, we have two words, two different words, faith and faithfulness. And we think of those as meaning slightly different things, don't we? But in the Bible, they only had one word for faith and faithfulness. Because for them, faith was faithfulness. So Bible translators need to make a decision as to which of those two different English words. They're going to use and the decision they make obviously affects what you and me as ordinary bible readers think that a verse is saying so for example Habakkuk 24 that we read at the beginning in the 1984 edition of the niv it says the righteous shall live by faith with a footnote or by faithfulness but then in the 2011 edition they flip that round the righteous shall live by faithfulness, or for or by faith. So, if faith is faithfulness, and it's a doing word, what does living by faith actually look like? And I want to suggest to you that the answer is this. Making a decision to live faithfully to the way that a person would live Doing all the things that a person would do with our time, our money, our affections, our decisions in life and our priorities in life. If we knew for sure that what we believed about God and Jesus and the Christian story was true. And when we start to think about living by faith as living in a way that shows faithfulness like that, then it completely changes things. Because our doubts and our questions and and uncertainties and even our fears become irrelevant. Because to have them is only human and God knows that. So having faith is not about somehow eliminating them from our heads. Faith is about the choices that we make as to what we're going to do despite them. Living in the way that trusting people would live, rather than living in the way that doubting people would live. How little they can get away with putting their bets, as it were. Let me give you an example, an illustration that's a little bit like in marriage. Being faithful, or unfaithful, is not defined by whether we have the right beliefs about marriage. Whether we Believe in faithfulness is not the point, is it? It's defined by what we do and don't do as a married person. Faithfulness in marriage is a doing word, not a believing word. And it's relational, isn't it? It's defined by what we do and don't do in relation to a person. We won't get very far telling our partner that, although, yes, I did have an affair, don't worry, because I never stop believing in faithfulness. Good luck with that one. In Mark chapter 9, there's a story you may know of, of the father of a boy who was demon-possessed and couldn't speak. And the father comes to Jesus and they have a short conversation. And then he says to Jesus, if you can do anything, take pity on us for Not exactly unshakable mental certainty going on there, didn't you say? If you can do anything, Jesus. much as you and I might want to be biblical, our credibility in the midweek prayer meeting will not be greatly enhanced by starting off as that man did. Dear Lord, if you can do anything. Luke and Dawn would have their heads in their hands at this point. And then Jesus says to this man, everything is possible for one who believes. And the man responds with an amazing statement. He says, I do believe, help my unbelief. So it seems like a high score on that faith scale, and even less so, unshakable mental certainty, was not what Jesus was looking for. And that the presence of some unbelief alongside belief doesn't seem to have been a problem. Jesus simply asked the man to believe in what was possible. Which brings us on to the other side of this point. The opposite of faith is not too little faith. The opposite of faith is deliberate unbelief. It says, God can't do this, or God won't do this, it's impossible. It's a refusal to believe. And because faith is relational, what that amounts to is a refusal to believe in the goodness of God. Matthew 13, it says that Jesus only did some miracles there because of their unbelief. And that Greek word means disbelief. It means refusing to believe. So, It's not that faith is some powerful force that makes things happen. But active and deliberate unbelief is a powerful force to stop things happening. And the reason for that is because unbelief is exercising our free will to say no thank you to divine possibilities. And of course, God will respect that. So the good news about a lack of faith, I can call it that, is that it's not something that you and I are in danger of falling into by accident. It's not grade three or below on the faith scale. It's a deliberate decision not to believe, which actually makes it a bit easy to live by faith, does it not? So what we do is we cultivate expectancy. We pray expectantly and we allow for divine possibilities when we pray. And all the time we show that we're continuing to trust Jesus, living by faith, meaning we live our lives the way that a person would live, we do the things that a person would do if what they believe is true. Trusting in God and His goodness Whatever the outcome is of any particular prayer, so I want to finish by having a quick look at a proper translation of Hebrews eleven that we looked at earlier in the living Bible. And before we do that, let me give you just a little bit of context on this chapter. The whole of Hebrews chapter eleven is about the so-called heroes of faith of the Old Testament, and we see there. Example after example of people whose faith was being celebrated. Not for what they thought in their heads, but for what they did in their lives. The choices that they made, and especially when the chips were down. And I think a really good example of that is a woman called Rahab, the prostitute who hid the Israelite spies in Jericho in Joshua chapter 2. There is no hint in her story that the faith that she was celebrated for had anything whatsoever to do with mental circuitry or the absence of any doubts or fears. My guess is that it would probably have been the exact opposite of that. I mean she must have been absolutely terrified the whole time in case she got it wrong. Just imagine what they would have done to her if they found out that she betrayed them. So I think for Rahab that really was faith spelt R-I-S-K, as John Miller used to say. I mean that is not in the same league as getting your prophetic word a little bit wrong. So for all of those heroes of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, what living by faith meant was living and acting In ways that aligned their lives and their life decisions with how someone would live, what someone would do, if what they believed was true. Faith for them was trusting in a God that they couldn't see and in a future that they couldn't see. Whatever was happening in their present. And for some of them, that whatever was happening is actually quite suddenly. Some of these heroes of faith were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at and their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prisons. Some died by stoning. Some were sawn in half and others were killed with the sword. Some went about wearing the skins of sheep and goats, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. They were too good for this world, wandering over deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All of these people earned a good reputation because of their faith, yet none of them received all that God had promised at the time. Because for them, that was not our faith, but it was our faithfulness. But none of that Looks very much like a confident assurance that something we want is going to happen, as Kenneth Taylor put it. I don't see any naming it or claiming it going on here. And I think this context helps us to make sense of the verse that the chapter starts with, Hebrews 11 1. But this time in a proper translation. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence things not seen so faith happens, living by faith is happening when we turn things that can't be seen into things that can be seen in other words our lives become the substance our lives become the evidence of things that people can't see of God so faith becomes embodied Faith becomes trust put into action. Faith is something that we do rather than something that we have. So, a person of faith is someone who is living in ways that are visible evidence of the story of Jesus being true. Someone who matches up how they spend their time and energy with the story being true. And their financial giving with the story being true. And their priorities in life with the story being true. And their big life decisions with the story being true. People who basically throw in their lot with this story being true. Rather than hedging our bets, holding back and seeing what we can get away with. People of faith are expectant when they pray. Because they believe in divine possibilities, but not in formulaic certainties. They never doubt that God loves to heal. But they always put their faith in God rather than in the healing. They believe in the nature and character of God, not in the nature and character of something called faith. And they keep on believing that, and they show that by keeping on praying for more and more people and more and more situations because they never stop trusting in the goodness of God, who he is and what he's like. People of faith have made a decision that they will keep on loving God and keep on praying for people, whatever the outcome of any particular prayer because God is still good and always good. So Hebrews 11.6 is right. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. But with that kind of faith, it very much is possible to please God. Living by faithfulness to what we believe and the God we believe in, being true. It's a parable of the talent kind of faith. It's a well done, good, and faithful servant. Habakkuk 2.4 says the righteous shall live by faithfulness. And next chapter Habakkuk 3 shows us what that might need to look like in practice. Even though the fig trees have no blossoms and there are no grapes on the vines. Even though the olive crop fails and the fields lie empty and barren, Even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empty. Which and their world is pretty much describing what complete disaster looked like. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. So this is living by faith and not by sight. This is living by faithfulness to what we believe being true. It's faith as faithfulness. It's faith as trust and loyalty and commitment to the nature and character of God that we see in Jesus, whatever life throws at us. I wonder if the band back to somewhere. Thank you, guys. So time's moving on, but we would love to pray with you this morning if anything has resonated today. If you'd like to respond to the Holy Spirit. Luke, maybe you're somewhere, Luke? Pastor Luke, anyone seeing him? Oh, hello, Luke. (laughs) Sorry to wake you. (laughs) Okay, seriously. And so I would particularly love us to pray with you for a couple of things, if if these resonate. Maybe you have lived with some guilt and regret, but if only you had had more faith, something bad would have happened in the past. That's you, we would love to pray with you and release you from that. And I'd also like to invite you to prayer if you've had a sense this morning of Holy Spirit saying that not everything in your life right now lives up to and lines up with being a person of faith. You're not living the way that a person would live and doing the things that a person would do if this story of Jesus and his kingdom was true. So can I gently challenge you to make a decision today, to get your time and your energy in line with it being true, and your financial giving in line with it being true, and your priorities in life in line with it being true. Even alongside the questions, doubts, and even the fears that are only natural for us to have maybe we need to decide to be that kind of person this morning.
1: Okay, well, hey, if you, um, if you identify with or connect with any of those those two things, or maybe you just want prayer in general, uh, why don't we do this? If you would like prayer and you want to wanna respond to those invitations, why don't you stand up right now, just wherever you're at. I want to just share, this is this was my takeaway. Steve said something brilliant, which I know he'll love to hear. Uh, but he said, faith becomes trust put into action. And when he said that, I just thought about how, man, that's a really good, like, if we have a goal, I, I would like to put, put that, that in action, or my trust in Jesus. And so maybe if that's something, too, you're here this morning, say, hey, I'd, I'd like to grow in my ability to trust, my willingness to trust uh, Jesus. Um, we'd love to pray for you, too, so if you want to respond to that, too, feel free to stand on that. But um, here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray. I'm going to actually have Steve pray, if that's okay. He, he's learned how to do that. He <laughs> spends a lot of time with me. So, uh, But if you're around somebody right now that is standing and you feel comfortable, or if maybe you're standing and you would like to pray for the person next to you, you know, at our church, we oftentimes say everybody gets to play because we believe that it's important for all of us to be willing to pray for one another. Um so if you're if you see somebody though and you would be, be willing to, why don't you stand up and go find somebody just to put a hand on their shoulder and you can pray for them? Um if you're part of our prayer teams or involved in leadership at all and, and if you're standing there and no one's coming by you because you didn't shower or something this morning, uh but you're you're with somebody, why don't you put your hand on their shoulder? And, and Steve, would you just pray for a number of those things for us? Just sure. bless this church too. Yeah, yeah. So come Holy
0: Spirit. Come Holy Spirit, we invite more of your presence here. You touch every single life, every single person, every heart and mind that's responding to you this morning. Come Holy Spirit. So if you're someone who's lived with guilt and regret and blamed yourself for stuff in the past that. If only you'd have more faith, it wouldn't I want to break that in Jesus' name this morning, because it's a lie. And we just need to change our way of thinking on this, and, and the healing will come. Because it was not us, it was not our lack of faith. It's just the way it was. So you'll bring healing We pray, bring your presence, get your healing with your presence, and let you restore hearts and minds as well. And for those who have seen for the first time maybe that faith is about what we do, not the certainty of anything at all because it's an uncertain life. We're believing in a God we can't see. We're believing in a story that's been passed down to us. It. Something in our heart says, yes, this is probably true. But we need to demonstrate that by becoming a people who live faith and do faith and stop thinking of it as mental certainty but think of it as making trusting and faithful decisions in life. So I pray, Lord, for um, your presence again. Lord, would you come? Would you bring the power to make a decision this morning and the willingness to see that decision through and to take some actions even today to make that change, to make those changes in how we're doing faith, how we're doing life before God. So come, Holy Spirit seal the deal for us in our hearts and would you give us obedience to move forward as people who
1: trust you in Jesus' Amen. Amen. Amen.